Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brobble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, just reminding you guys, we got a live show this Saturday, September 26th at 11 p.m. at the Creek in the Cave in Long Island City, Queens, 1093 Jackson Avenue, off of the G train and the 7 train. If you can't make it out, we're going to be live streaming the show like we do every month on our YouTube channel. We got Holden McNeely from the Roundtable of Gentlemen sitting in for Henry this month. So we'll either see you guys on the live stream or here in Queens. And that is 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for all you guys out there around the world. And speaking of Queens, time for today's heavy hitter, Son of Sam. There's no place to escape to. This is the last time. On the left. (laughs) That's when the cannibalism started. It all sounds good to me. All right, well, that's not going to help. Suck my deal. That's not the spelling. That's not the uh, alphabet as I know it. A, B, C, D, never gone. All right, welcome to the last podcast on the left, everybody. I'm Ben Kissel, as always, joined by Marcus Parks in the studio, but unfortunately, all the way across the, uh, what do you call it, border. Is can is Canada and there's a person there in Toronto that we know. I gotta tell you, you know the funniest thing about baseball is that all you need with baseball is a ball. It's ninety five percent ball, and then it's gotta be thirteen percent bases, and that's baseball. That's why you don't talk to people at a water cooler. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I've just been delivering wisdom as Yogi Berra until yesterday. When I died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to my own face. <laughs> oh, that's not. Oh, that was a sad death, Yogi's death. It was a Yogi Berra, just another Brooklyn idiot. Well, some people thought he was a genius. I just think that it's funny that Yogi Berra said things that, um, in many other societies, would label him as a man with a learning disability, <laughs> and not- it made him very famous. <laughs> yes. The idea of him just going like, you know, a fruit is a fruit, vegetables are fruit for assholes. Uh, you know what I mean? And that's all he said was stuff like, you know, sometimes when you're wearing a hat, it's like you got something on your head. And then he became famous. And also, like, kind of like how Forrest Gump was just because he was so sweet, still doesn't change the fact that a folk singer 
made love to a gigantic retarded man. Yep, yep, and she hung out with uh, very, very difficult left-leaning individuals who beat her. <laughs> Jen, eh? All right, but speaking of summer, Yogi Berra, of course, baseball is the game of the summer, and uh, back in the 1970s, there was another activity that was happening in the summer, a whole bunch of shootings. Today, we're going to be discussing the Son of Sam. Yep. Oh, yeah, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, a.k.a. the 44 caliber killer. Can I give him a new nickname today? Mm-hmm. Soggy bottoms. <laughs> Ooh. Not going to argue with that one. After having done quite a bit of research on Mr. David Berkowitz, many a soggy bottom were had between 1976 and 1977, in which yeah. he killed six people and wounded seven here in New York City, a spree that lasted one year and three days. That's right. So today here on the last podcast on the left, apparently we're going to be focusing on his um, liquid dumps. Is that what we're getting at so far? Just something about like when I think of David Berkowitz and I look at his face, I imagine the wet gene of a man sitting at a Magic the Gathering competition uh, yes. all day. Oh, or yeah. this man is uh, David Berkowitz and getting deep into the research about him is that he's it's amazing what he did to New York City. He held the entire city in a, the grip of fear. Mm. We covered it a little bit uh, when we did our In Search of the Boogeyman, when we went and looked at where he shot people up in Forest Hills. Um, but getting into the man himself, uh, he was just kind of, I think of him as an Ed Kemper light. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He no, might actually I'll, weigh less than Ed Kemper. Oh, he weighs much less. He was yeah. like 5'8". Ed Kemper was your size. Oh, interesting. Monster yeah, size. Yeah, huge. Un- inhuman. <laughs> oh, I see. Right. Like, if, if you were to take an elephant and match him with an orangutan, then have to tell him, try to put in some Wrangler jeans. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Put him to work. So David Berkowitz, as I said, he was known as the forty-four caliber killer because the weapon he used all throughout was a forty-four caliber revolver. Now, Berkowitz is very... Very rare in his use of firearms as a murder weapon in the serial killer world. Gunshot wounds account for less than 8% of all sexually motivated serial murders. David Berkowitz was also a lot younger than a lot of the other killers. The average age of a serial killer during their first murder is 27.5, but Berkowitz had already racked up seven before he was 24. And what am I doing at 34? (laughs) Good God, what a loser I am. It's like Daniel David Berkowitz is sort of like the Dakota Fanning right. of serial killers. I also want to put it again. This is why I like to refer to him as Ed Kemper Light because he has sort of the same motivations. He's delivered. It's kind. Of, he's got a big old fashioned old timey mommy complex, and he hates girls who are making out with dudes because mm. they're not making out with him, and they never will because he's a fucking loser. And so Ed Kemper felt those same feelings, but what he did was really get all with the stabbing of him and getting really intense and jizzing in his pants. And then you remember the whole thing. Do you remember, Marcus, when he cut his mother's head off and made it blow him for a bunch of days? Blow him and then put it on the mantle and yelled at it for two hours. You remember that. Yeah. There was a whole episode about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. David Berkowitz just blamed it all on a fucking dog. (laughs) Or so he claimed. So let's get into the early life of David Berkowitz. (laughs) Birth name, Richard David Falco. He was the product of an affair between a married real estate agent named Joseph Kleinman and Betty Falco, a former fish market employee. And I'll say this, you could never trust a woman who works at a fish market. <laughs> a monger? A fishmonger woman is not to be trusted. You <laughs> but, know why? Because she spends all her times with eels, and eels are 
Liars. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That's untrue. I'm going to say a fish market lady is the most trustworthy person on the face of the planet. Fish is a very controversial thing to sell, and they got to be on- telling the truth. Otherwise, you die. You're just trying to get a toe into the fish market, fishmonger single scene. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's, this is. there's a dating app for it. <laughs> Wet women. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, don't look that up. Don't look no, up the no, women no, no, app no. at work right now. Don't do that. No, carp chicks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing like a bunch of flappy carp chicks. Yum, yum, yum. So immediately, this guy was given up for adoption, and Dick Falco became David Berkowitz, the only son of Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz. As Henry said, unusually close to his adopted mother, but his father would repeatedly refer to David every chance he could as, quote, a mistake. Because you know how it is with Jewish couples. They just got really upset that they never received a receipt and could not return him. So adoption, not uncommon in serial killers. Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, and Joel Rifkin, who killed 17 prostitutes here in New York City between 1989 and 1993, both adopted. Here's another interesting side note. Berkowitz and Rifkin, both Jewish, which is extremely rare among serial killers. Well, you're going to actually find out that that was a part of why he felt so isolated because he felt like he wasn't like the other Jewish kids because the other Jewish kids respected their mother and father and respected society and were like law abiding good people. And he felt that he was always lacking in that always. He always felt he had a hole deep inside. And, but at the same time, he had a very normal childhood. Yeah. And not only did he not feel at home with uh, some of these Jewish kids, but he was also in the Bronx during a time of transition from a Jewish neighborhood over into an Hispanic neighborhood. So he was getting constantly like Jew boy, mm. Uh, being made fun of and picked on because he was Jewish. And really all that is is a switch from candelabras to piñatas. That's really all it is. If you oh, want to sure. switch it over, is you have to take out all you take out all the the what they call the the mukashakas? What are they called? <laughs> oh, the hamses? No, no, the no, things no. The, the candelabras, the, the mezuzas, the mezuzas. No, you no, no, no. That's a mezuzas. scroll. Let's just agree they're not the mukashakas. <laughs> I think we know what they're not, which is an important step to find out what they you are. Place, you every single thing that looks Jewish, anything that looks like it's got like an alien language written on it that's Hebrew you take that out of it and you replace it with a bunch of corn with cream on it with spices on top of it mmm I love Mexican corn <laughs> sounds like kind of a racist way to describe that gentrification there <laughs> that's culture. all I'm about yeah <laughs> interesting and of course after the killings you know he felt very guilty so David Extremely hyperactive child, bigger, heavier than kids his own age. In fact, the word pudgy Mm. would be used to describe him all of his life, having been used in almost every single article, book, or documentary written and made after his arrest. And I also want to put it this way. Okay, he's TV fat. He's not even real fat. Okay, yeah. John Wayne Gacy was actually fat. Yeah. This guy is, this is the fake Seth Rogen, I'm your harmless boyfriend fat. So David was said to be a relatively normal child until, like many other serial killers, he suffered two dr- traumatic br- head injuries. Mm. One at four, in which a kid dropped a rock on his head so from the top question. of a building. So was, was the kid Wiley Coyote? <laughs> Yeah, was it one of those? And he saw him, and because David ran by, going like meep meep, and he had like a puff of smoke behind him. This is very and then because he missed him on a giant like slingshot. 
The he was Bron- trying to shoot himself at him with it? It's different, different times in the Bronx. <laughs> it's more of a cartoon time. Oh, yeah. Very Lord of the Flies situation. Oh, huh? yeah. I remember the Acme neighborhood really changing <laughs> when it went from the Acme Jewish neighborhood to where it was a lot of uh, yarmulkes with springs on them. So that you try to put on go bling, 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 you know, to uh, rice that you couldn't eat because it was fake. Just fake rice on a dish. Well, that was the only head injury that he had. He had another one at the age of seven after being hit by a car. Now, following the second brain injury, he became fairly aggressive but quiet and prone to temper tantrums. He once tore down all of the curtains in his family's apartment in a huge fit of rage. He also enjoyed burning bugs as a hobby and killed his mother's pet bird, all behavior that came after the injury. Oh. And the truth is he killed his mother's pet bird because he was jealous of the attention the mother would give to uh, this bird. When his adoptive parents uh, were raising him, they told him the whole time that his mother died in childbirth. And this filled David with this sense of guilt that he killed. He killed his mom just by being brought into this world. And that his father left the scene quickly afterwards. And so this caused him to have this sort of like fiery, intense connection to his adoptive mother. But at the same time, he like hated her for it. Yeah. He had very a common serial killer trait that we see constantly where it's just like love mommy, hate mommy, want vagina, hate vagina. Yeah. So when David was 14, 15 months after his bar mitzvah, his mother died of breast cancer, completely de- devastated him because, again, it was another woman leaving his life. Not just had his mother left him at childbirth, but now his adopted mother had left him as well. And he had known all of his life that he had been adopted, as Henry said. And he would also blame himself not just for his birth mother's death, but also for his adopted mother's death. He said that he thought that she died because he, quote, wasn't good enough. And you have these reoccurring nightmares where his real father would come back and kill him and eventually he would talk about he was consumed with nightmares as a kid a very frightful kid like a pussy <laughs> he's definitely doing something wrong <laughs> he's doing a lot wrong. all of his moms are dead <laughs> he's got he's got to figure that out no the first one the first that was a lie his first one was still alive yeah but he thinks she's dead so what's the difference <laughs> So David, he did, despite all the things with, you know, the problems with women and all that, David Berkowitz is a fascinating character to me, not just because of how he grew up, but also because of the perceptions that people have about him. And they weigh in the way that people really oversimplify this guy is that David Berkowitz was actually a pretty complicated guy in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually did have somewhat of a sweetheart growing up, a girl named Iris Gerhardt. Oh, yeah. Good old Iris. About David, she said, I was never intimate with him. You know, I mean, we were four. We just (laughs) kissed each other on the lips of the building behind Co-op City when we all hung around in the local community club. But I must confess, I liked them a lot. Yeah, I've got this book. Good. Yeah, I got this book uh, that I got in. Fascinating little true crime artifact. Uh, it's called Son of Sam, the 44 caliber killer. Uh, and it was written 
after Berkowitz was caught, but before he was sentenced. There's a little picture on uh, the cover that just said that has a son of Sam, and it says the accused, and it was written by a New York Post reporter, probably in I don't know three weeks or something like that. Mm. So it's just horribly but wonderfully written all at the same time, and he devotes an entire chapter to Iris Gerhardt. Uh, he went, he found her, he did interviews with her, uh, and found out that they and found out a lot about David Berkowitz when he was growing up, when he was in high school, was not always the loner that he later became. Weird dude. Definitely a weird dude. But he still had close friends. Uh, In fact, they all threw him a party the night before he left to join the Army in 1971. They all drove him to Port Authority the next morning, all said goodbye. Uh, They hung out together. They had, like, New Year's Eve parties together. At some point, though, it sounds a bit like an overkill when they throw you the party when you're leaving and they drive you to make sure you get on the train. It makes you think that they wanted him gone. (laughs) You know, and he's like, guys, but what if I stayed? They're like, no, you want to go. You're going to. Guys, you guys have been so nice. It's 1971. Vietnam's going to be a blast. Or you're going to Vietnam. You're going to do nothing but surf. No, 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 no. Get in the bus. No, no, no. I was thinking you guys have been so good to me these past couple of days. Maybe I should just stick around. Oh, Drive away. Friends. So he did actually manage to avoid Vietnam. But what he said about himself was that no matter what happened to him he said he was always surrounded by love and people loving him and he had and he had a lot of friends but he always felt distinctly alone like what you see a lot it's it's a it's a treat of being a kind of like a psychopath because a part of it is that you do believe you're better than other people mm-hmm. he believed that he, he it was the thing because he called himself the schmutz which means the dirty one <laughs> and, and, yeah. and he said that he was never good enough that all he did was bring the party down. And the thing is that if you have that attitude, you are ruining everybody's good time. You are doing that. So yeah, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. You can't receive love and you can't give love. That's the problem. You can't love yourself before you love anybody else. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so David, he managed to avoid Vietnam. But also he yeah. had a very big like nationalist streak, which we're also going to see about Dave fucking Davey fucking Berkey is that he loved to belong to a group. He never wanted to be a leader. He just wanted to be a part of, of, of some sort of society. And so he went to, to join the army because he wanted to be a Jewish super soldier. Like truly, he was like, I mm. want to be a, a Jewish kid that becomes famous for like dying in the fucking Vietnam. Yeah, and of course. what happens when he goes to Vietnam, he gets sent to Korea. <laughs> Which is, of course, part of a larger government conspiracy in order for them to continue the war in Vietnam, the proxy war against the Russians. If Berkowitz goes over to Vietnam, you know what happens? We win the war. <laughs> and they know for a fact, as soon as you send big fat David over there, you know, the Viet Cong are going to surrender immediately. We need at least another five, six years of this thing. <laughs> And the other thing about David Berkowitz wanting to belong uh, is that he, in his co-op, uh, where he grew up, co-op city that had their own uh, fire precinct, he would go down there, he would sneak in and put on firefighter uniforms and would sometimes like wear them home and they'd have to go up and say like, hey, David, you can't, you can't do this. You can't steal uniforms. He was a part of the uh, NYPD auxiliary police force for a couple of years. Uh, this guy... All he wanted to do is to belong to a group. Loved the uniform. So he was sent to Korea, but even though he was sent to Korea in... Because he scored pretty high on his tests, on his aptitude test. They sent him to Korea mm-hmm. uh, to be pretty much an administrator. Uh, he nonetheless learned how to shoot a gun 
he was not that bad at it. He was able to bullseye 37 targets out of 100. That's not the best, but it's sharpshooter range. That's pretty fucking good. 37%? Bullseye 37%. Oh, bullseye. Oh, I yeah, see. man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Pretty good. See, it's easy to do when you just imagine, you know, at that time just being like, Gotta get it right in the hole in the vagina. That's <laughs> the only way to really to destroy the woman. Oh, I see that. Oh, the the Korean with the he's got a vagina for you. I'm gonna put a bullet right in it. No, no, David, we're not at war with the Koreans. <laughs> we're just hanging out here. We're just here going to whorehouses, mm-hmm. wasting everybody's time and money. <laughs> well, David, he never really talked a whole lot about his experience with women while he was in Korea. He said sometimes he said that he chased him a little bit. Other times he said that he hinted towards that he might have lost his virginity in Korea. And if he did, that was the only time he had sex. We know that for a fact. But David also in Korea started to experiment with drugs. Took a lot of acid. Smoked a lot of pot and did a lot of of cocaine. Normally that makes somebody really awesome. Well, but, yeah, um, I mean, well, we're getting into that. You know, he was starting to live the groovy drug life. He started to become kind of a super left-wing pacifist. Uh, and in letters to Iris, he started to ramble about nonviolence, quote-unquote, war pigs. Yeah. And the power of love. You know, pretty 1971 Acid head ramblings, yeah. pretty much. He uh, he refused to carry a weapon uh, and was nearly discharged for that. Uh, but by the he's time, in the army, you know what I mean. You're still in the army. You gotta have yeah. at least to hold the gun. Yeah. Well, he was you trying. Know, to, yeah. He was trying to get conscientious uh, objector status. Uh, he wanted to work as a firefighter or something like that. But by the time his career in the army was almost over. This the rhetoric that he had that went from, you know, the power of love, like all these war pigs, like, man, you know, we really got to all come together. Uh, It started to change. It started to sour a little bit. And this is what he wrote in one of his last letters. I might turn out to be a lifetime freak. They taught me about many weapons. I will use these tactics to destroy. Also, please send Schmier. (laughs) Please send bagels and Schmier to Korea. The only shmi I find comes from the, it's horrible jawed stuff that comes from the legs of some of these whores out here. And I'm looking for some real cream cheese, some real Brooklyn, oof, how I do long for some, mm, some scaly and cream cheese. Vietnam was hard for everybody. It was a tough war on many, many levels. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough. But Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents' accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on 
hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders. I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. So I think that Berkowitz, much like the Manson family, like a lot was happening in the late 70s when a lot of people were experimenting with this stuff and didn't really understand that you can't take acid every day. Well, not if you have an STD either. I'm just sitting here thinking how trippy it must be to have like Gorpy, you know, the big love bump <laughs> on the side of your penis and you're tripping acid. And at some point you just start talking to it, right? Yeah, it becomes your friend. Yeah, it must It's be. just like, don't worry there, buddy. I love you. I'm your girlfriend now. Because I ain't never going away. That's <laughs> yeah, the only gal that stuck around on him. Well, I think Berkowitz, like the Manson family, they took so much acid because they went straight past peace and love mm. and landed in the land of violent, paranoid delusions. He was so close to being groovy. If right. he only would have stopped doing the cocaine, if he only would have stopped taking acid every day, and if he wasn't kind of fucked up to begin with, he might have been okay. Just kids out there know when to stop. Just do it. Basically, as soon as nobody else is dancing. That's how you know when, like, the <laughs> like if the party's going too long. Where yeah. you're the last guy dancing and you have to do like, you're like, come on, guys. Let's go. Mm-mm. Let's get into it. Let's get nuts. The party's over. You got to stop. I always say take a nap. <laughs> you know, that's kind of a fun thing to do after you're doing a bunch of drugs. And yeah. as soon as you start boarding up your windows. <laughs> So David also had one more change in store from the army. He found Christ in Korea. Not surprisingly, the I, saw, I saw the face of Jesus in her labia. <laughs> what would you even believe? I saw it, and it was just like I was like, "Oh, I see his beard. Oh, and his long hair hanging down. Oh, that's just. Oh, she is unkept. <laughs> this woman is just not been maintaining. But I can see the nose." The top of it. Oh, it's clitoris. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprisingly, the Christians who knew him in Korea, that this guy, this post reporter, went and interviewed, they called him, quote, Fantastic guy with a great personality. Great. He's a sir winner. That Henry, they weren't Korean. The people, what? they weren't Korean that he was hanging out with. They were in Korea. They were white people in Korea. Missionaries. You just, it just says the Christians that he knew in Korea. <laughs> no, no, no. I know that's what it says. I know it says the Christians he knew in Korea, but they weren't actually Christian. They were more like, fantastic guy with a great personality, a great soul winner. Yeah, maybe oh. Southern, something like that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, I just assumed, if, you know. We're all in church in Korea. They just start talking like that because that's how the Korean Jesus talks. Yeah. I'm actually, I, I understand Henry's point of view on this one. It's very confusing. Richard Artemis. Redemption hit the bird. Yes, sir. 
sir, sir, better than barbecue, sir. And oh. welcome, everybody. Uh, Tune it in after the Heroes premiere this Thursday. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that's Henry Zabrowski, the man you're cheering for. <laughs> uh, so he was discharged in 1971, returned to New York City, a completely obnoxious evangelist and left-wing anti-war dove. Mm-hmm. Now, between the new Jesus freak thing and the constant anti-war yeah. ramblings, not a single person who knew him before he went into the army, not even his father could stand to be anywhere around him. And we talked about this on Top Hat, people coming back like totally peaceful after they see the perils of war. Of course, he just saw a whole series of prostitutes and that traumatized him <laughs> to the point where he became a dove. But I guarantee you, he, he hopped on that bandwagon, and I don't know this for sure, but I guarantee you... I I guarantee it, he voted for Mr. Jimmy Carter. (laughs) He might have. Well, he was in prison by the time Carter came around. Well, he still voted for him. (laughs) So, man, he even called his best friend, Ed, who had joined the Coast Guard. He called him, quote, a war pig and rightist militant. That's what we call our friend, Ed. (laughs) Which is so strange. No, no, no. We call him a warg warg pig. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's our word for for how wide he is. Yes. The the thing is, is that Ed joined the Coast Guard to get as far away from fighting as humanly possible. Right. He's being a beach cop. That's what being a Coast Guard is. He's, He's literally... A bikini inspector. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound too war piggish to me. No. Mm-mm. So Berkowitz, alienating everybody that he knew, moved out of the neighborhood that he grew up in, got a job as a security guard, and officially began his life as a loner. Now, he, he, did he join the loner union? Because <laughs> yeah. what they get, with the loner union, you get um, trench coat. Uh, grease for your hair that mm-hmm. just comes from the crooks of motel beds and you get um, the action sandals. <laughs> wow, that's a hell of a, uh, a grab bag. So David's new neighbors, they didn't have any easier of a time with him than his old friends and family. His downstairs neighbor, Craig Glassman, received threatening handwritten letters from Berkowitz on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. This is uh, what one of them said. How dare you force me into the night to do your bidding? True. Yes, I am the killer. But Craig the killer kills on your command. The streets have been filled with blood at the request of Craig. Because Craig is Craig, so must the streets be filled with Craig. Signed David Berkowitz, apartment 1B. This is from David Berkowitz. I should have said something. Didn't mean to scare you. Didn't mean to surprise you, but you left your newspaper out. I thought I'd I'd bring it to you. I hate it when people steal it, Craig, forcing me to murder. I just, you know, if I was Jewish, I would be upset with Woody Allen because he just created every impression. (laughs) That's Berkowitz. Oh, God. God. It's the dog. It's telling me to do it. And I told the judge, said the old dogs need to be spayed. I'm more of a cat person. You're so quiet, self-maintained. But this dog, oh, God, it just won't let me sleep. Oh, where's my magooga? I got to put my magooga on before I go to Sabbath time. There's a Sabbath soup night. Well, you're just never going to work again, are you? <laughs> Sabbath soup night does sound very fun, though. I would love to go. If you're out there listening and you know where a Sabbath soup night is in your area, let me know. I'll fly down and see you. So after Berkowitz returned to New York, he found out that his birth mother was actually still alive. 
He contacted contacted her. Strangely enough, failed to connect with her. Uh, and because, because you know what he said, he expected her to be a beautiful woman. Yeah. When he he had built her up in his mind, mm-hmm. and when he got the, the the word that his mom was still alive, he went to go look for her, and he they they met up with each other, and he said, um, he met her and he expected her to be this ethereally beautiful like woman dressed in white and she was just this tiny jewish woman and he couldn't handle it she was a little jewish italian woman and it, like he would do this impression of her where she he would put his hands up over his ears and go i'm so sorry i'm so sorry oh. which is what he said to the psychiatrist the psychiatrist talked in this great documentary called son of sam speaks yeah um and it's just him he was just so mad that his mom didn't have big tits. That's a fun client to have. If you're if you're a psychiatrist, David Berkowitz is a hell of a client to have. Oh, great always one. a good day. Never meet your idols. <laughs> they always just end up getting drunk, whipping out their dicks, and demanding you go buy him cocaine. <laughs> so not long after he wrote, not long after he visited his birth mother, mother, he wrote in a letter letter to his father. The girls, they call me ugly, and they bother me the most. Oh, I get, oh, it's my underwear that gets all tied up inside my, my, my gugga. My gugga, which is Stop between my knockers and my, my bishel back here where <laughs> my, my poopoo comes. Poopoo comes out of the bishel, and my, my guggas are with my seams are. Uh, yeah, I think that's accurate. Those yeah. are all, yeah. <laughs> that's good. So again, like many other serial killers, David was also an arsonist. From 1974 to 1977, David was responsible for 1,500 fires in and around New York City, mm. each one detailed in his journal in which he referred to himself as the Phantom of the Bronx. Very fun. Very Can I creative. toss a nerd alert onto that one? <laughs> <laughs> but 1,500 fires, I mean, that is enough for in itself to stand alone as a career criminal, right? Yeah. I mean, he didn't even have to go to the uh, the other step of murdering people. Yeah. Well, he was caught trying to set fire to his own apartment building. That is true. They caught, some guys right. caught him and it's like, what are you doing? He was out with like literally a can of kerosene just going like, oh, just making the building wet. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're trying to set fire to everyone inside. Um, they stopped that. He said that he would love the idea of setting a fire and then he'd immediately call the fire department right. so that he could feel the feeling of saving everyone as well. Right. And that is the definition of don't uh, shit where you eat. You know, he just yeah. tried to burn down his own place. Just go. got got to go a couple doors down. Actually, the very definition of that is is shitting <laughs> inside of a Happy Meal box. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't the only time he tried burning his uh, building down. Uh, the man downstairs, Mr. Glassman, he used to set trash on fire. One time he set trash on fire on uh, Glassman's front porch and threw a bunch of twenty two bullets uh, into the fire, hoping that... They yeah. would explode when Glassman came out. A much more so cruel... So that's called technically setting a Yosemite Sam bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fun. So as Berkowitz's hatred and resentment of women reached a fever pitch, David decided it was time for him to take action. However, he would not use the revolver that he would eventually become famous for. His first weapon of choice was a knife. And because of what he'd seen in the movies, David thought that knifing a woman would be quick, easy, just one in the stomach, and then she'd fall. But 
on that. Also very, but that is very similar to Ed Kemper. Same thing. Where it's like, because they're losers, they build up these ideas of killings like in their mind. Because up to this point, he was just obsessed with killing. His biological aunt wanted him to be closer to their family. So he kept showing up and like hanging out for, but eventually, like he would just be consumed with this idea of, I have to kill women, I have mm-hmm. to kill women. And he just thought it would be easy. Yeah. I he, mean, he's not a very smart guy. He gets a lot of his ideas from movies, which is also why he bought a white uh, Volkswagen bug and he thought he could talk. He named it Herbie <laughs> and he tried to win the big race. Which is the saddest thing of him just yelling at his car, just going like, why won't you be my friend, Herbie? <laughs> I know. You're supposed to help me win the race, Herbie. You're supposed to help me find Goldie Hawn. Me and Goldie Hawn are supposed to go on a date, Herbie. And there's just like cars just lined up. At the red light. Right. Herbie's just not going. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. you said you were going to take me for ice cream later, but you're just sitting there. You're not driving yourself. Drive me to ice cream, Herbie. You're my slave. <laughs> On the first night of the first attack, it was Christmas Eve, 1975. Berkowitz discovered that stabbing was actually a prolonged, messy, and very loud process, Mm -hmm. particularly when you're attacking women on the streets of the Bronx as he was. I did it on Christmas Eve because all Jewish people are invisible on Christmas Eve. (laughs) But I didn't realize that people were just going to see a knife floating around. Oh, God, I should have thought about it. You know, what's scarier than a knife floating around? Even that scares me, and I'm the one with the knife. <laughs> it's a terrifying idea. <laughs> really is. So he tried to kill twice that night, and neither attempt gave David anywhere near the satisfaction that he wanted. The first attempt, she simply, when he started stabbing her, she was walking out of the grocery store, he started stabbing her. She just turned around, looked at him, and wordlessly just ran away. But the other one, Mm -hmm. she screamed her head off as he stabbed her six times. About that attempt, he later said, I didn't want to hurt them. I only wanted to kill them. So about a month later, David moved from the Bronx to Yonkers, where he claimed his demonic delusions began. His landlords, Jack and Nan Kassara, owned a German shepherd that David claimed was the one who first told him to kill young girls. Why why does everybody have these dogs? Why is it always dogs? Why can't it be a parakeet? (laughs) Oh, my mother had a parakeet, and oh, that's right, I killed it. <laughs> I just maybe it's pets I have a problem with. I'm allergic to them. But you do wonder if his previous downstairs neighbor missed the notes. If they, you know, <laughs> he's just like I didn't like the notes so much. I thought they were creepy while he was here, but I missed that creepy fat bastard. <laughs> Well, he also said that Jack Casara had an alias called Captain Jack Cosmo, in which Captain Jack commanded an army of devil dogs all across Yonkers. Mm, so he was, I wish I had an army of devil dogs right now. Mm. Mm. So he lasted three months in that apartment before he moved to the studio where he would live for the duration of the murders. But David couldn't find any peace there either for a black lab named Harvey, oh. owned by his neighbor, Sam Carr, was waiting for him. David said that Sam was possessed by demons. The son of that demon told him to commit the murders... And with that, son of Sam was born. 
Well, yes, it's and it's very interesting because this is where the story was, where his son of Sam tale began, uh, and we're going to find out later on that this is only the the first tale that he would tell about his actual demon possession, and that this is actually not the true one. The true one is that he was a part of a gigantic, multi-armed international satanic cult that was aimed to create societal chaos. Right, dog meat. Oh, just like the Hand of Death was created to do the exact same thing with Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool. Hmm. Coincidence? <laughs> I think yes. <laughs> so about a month before the murders began, Berkowitz drove down to Houston, Texas to visit an old army buddy of his, a man that would later refer to David as his best friend in the whole world. Oh, that's the saddest man in the story. <laughs> so sad. You know, just a guy hanging out in Houston waiting for his big buddy from the big city to come down and visit. Oh. So apparently David just kind of went to Houston, convinced his buddy to ask him, to, basically convinced his buddy to buy a gun for him because he didn't have a proper driver's license. But you needed to have a driver's license in Texas to buy a gun. Mm-hmm. So he went all the way to Texas to buy a gun that was more difficult for him to get in Texas. And then when his buddy asked him, why did you get this gun? Why am I buying this for you? He was like, oh, it's to protect me on my way back from Texas to New York City. So he bought a gun. (laughs) He traveled the dangerous trip, quote unquote, dangerous trip Mm -hmm. to go to Houston to buy the gun to protect him to go back. (laughs) Makes perfect sense. Well, logic like that works with the person who considers David Berkowitz his best friend. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'll just say I locked his piercing eyes and I locked his constant complaints. (laughs) (laughs) so the gun the revolver that was bought that's the gun that would give berkowitz his original nickname it was a charter arms bulldog 44 caliber revolver now the bulldog was a very interesting weapon it was originally designed for use on passenger aircraft after all those hijackings happened in the 1970s it was designed to not puncture the fuselage on an aircraft so what it was designed for it wasn't designed to be rough enough to go straight through the aircraft and to cause cabin pressure Mm. uh, to go out the window. It was designed only to kill at extremely close range. Air gun. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, it only, after 20 feet, the aiming went all off. Uh, The velocity definitely went down on the gun. Uh, So this was a gun that was designed for the express purpose of close-up murder. So when David got back to Yonkers, he quit his security guard job and got work as a cab driver, which is where he learned the ins and outs of the roads in the Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn. Well, it's I, very interesting how you know, he took he took a bunch of like quintessential 1970s New York jobs. It's like every job mm-hmm. that Robert De Niro had in a movie, <laughs> he did. And it all made it's all about getting used to the underworld. And it's part of filling his weird fantasy life about being this underworld creature. And I think that he didn't even belong in the underworld. Like he was such a weird, like guy who just would try, he was such a try hard, no matter what it is that he did that like, even there, it's like, you're not even like a cat burglar, man. You talking about how you fucking like prowl the streets at night just makes you sound like a bigger loser. Yeah. But I will say I've been in many cabs here in New York City. Nobody knows where they're going because they don't have any motivation to learn the streets. <laughs> and if you get in Berkowitz's cab, you know for a fact he's he's educated, he's got the maps out, and he's going to get you to your location on time. Hopefully you get in before he goes on his killing spree. <laughs> so 
after work as a cab driver, he'd come home and he'd listen to records. His favorite artists, Carol King, Ooh. Peter, Paul, and Mary, Aww. and James Taylor. Notice Aww. no no death metal in there. It's <laughs> no. always and, the people who listen to that peaceful hippie stuff that you and know. And it's literally all, all songs about having friends. Right. <laughs> Isn't that sad? <laughs> yeah. He'd also later say that uh, Rich Girl by Hall & Oates also inspired him to kill. <laughs> I'm sure Hall & Oates loved to hear it. <laughs> Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. He was also said to be extremely fond of love themes. Oh. Do you know what a love theme is? No, not really. Here, let's hear a little bit of a love theme. David slept on a bare mattress on the floor. One naked light bulb swinging above him. The shag carpeting in his studio apartment, strewn with empty milk cartons and bottles, along with various pornographic magazines. Hey, Romantico. <laughs> I also will say that this um, this music, doesn't that, that song come from the album um, Music to Load a Gun To? Yeah, I thought it was Music to Lick a Knife To, but maybe it was the wrong album. I, I don't oh. know. All I've been able to imagine for the past week is David Berkowitz yeah. sitting on a bare mattress on a floor mm-hmm. drinking milk straight from the carton with a naked light bulb above him. Right. Just staring at the wall, listening to the Romeo and Juliet theme. His mind began to deteriorate. I love this idea, too, that he basically became the movie maniac. Yeah, he really did. Because on the walls, he had written messages like, in this hole lives the wicked king. Kill for my master. And I turn children into killers, mostly with neglect. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely covered all of his windows in dirty sheets, long a hallmark of weird and insane people. I tell you, I had that in college, though, so I kind of take umbrage with that fact. You you grew out of it. You didn't, you, well, actually, yeah, you could play him in a movie. (laughs) Can you imagine me in the Oscar-winning new movie of Son of Sam? Yeah, I could totally see it. Me with the blue contacts in, just Mm -hmm. going like, oh, I wish you were prettier. My adopted mother lied to me. I just, uh, yo, why don't you got the big braces, mommy? Oh, I'm going to be the son of Sam now. Well, thanks for coming in, Mr. Zabrowski. I think we're going to go with something a little bit less stereotypical. Uh, What? Just less stereotypical. This is my interpretation. Yes, well. I am an artist. An actor takes the mask and puts it on and interprets. You know, the go-go-go-go-go, we've, you know, that that we've heard. We've heard it, you know, and and we thought we might go some a little more fresh. You think uh, you can give us a, give us something? Try, try, try some, try something. Try, yeah, yeah. Try it another way. Give us another reading. Yeah. Let me give you. Let me give you one more shot. Okay. okay let me cool. try it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Okay. Um, 
I get the knife in at first, but it's too I, I, difficult. I, I, <laughs> all right. As a matter of fact, oh, uh, Mr. Zabrowski, we'll see you now. It turns out you've been talking to the janitor the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how to audition very well. Well, there's nothing I love more than pranking actors. Mm, look at that. <laughs> yeah, how many, how many brilliant readings I've heard as a janitor here in Hollywood, California. Well, well, well. Oh, Mel Gibson took a shit on top of the toilet again. <laughs> <laughs> That'll happen. So it's time for the killings to begin. His year-long killing spree, it would begin six months after his first attempt and only two weeks after he picked up the 44 in Houston. July 28th, 1976, two young girls, Donna Loria and Jody Valenti, they were sitting in their car after returning from the Peachtree Disco, where they were regulars at the Wednesday night backgammon tournaments. Oh. But I feel like they. This is, a que- this is a New York thing from the 70s, where there were just odd circumstances and stuff like that. Everything was called a disco. When you hear the eyewitnesses talk about it, I want to cover it more in the next episode. Oh, yeah. But it's like more people just like talking about about what they would do when during nights of the killings and everyone was just kind of hanging out at a disco and we're doing stuff like this, like playing a crib game or doing something. And I think it's all just code for crimes. <laughs> Could be. This is before the internet, though, too, so you actually had to go out and play backgammon in real life. Yeah. You couldn't just sit at home. You couldn't play with a lonely Korean man. Mm. Why you always cheat? Why you never play rules? You come all the way from Bronx to do what? To come cheat me here at backgammon disco night? You know this is how I make raving for family. <laughs> so Berkowitz approached the passenger side of the Olds- Oldsmobile Cutlass where the girls we're sitting. He pulled his gun out of a brown paper bag and fired out five bullets, and he was still pulling the trigger after all of the chambers had been emptied. So Donna Loria of the Bronx would be Berkowitz's first murder victim, and although the young girl's death, yes, very tragic, her murder barely registered in a city that averaged over 2,000 murders a mm. year at the time. To give you some perspective... Right now in New York City, we average less than 400 murders a year. Damn. Yeah. No, murder. I mean, New York City was just something entirely. We're going to cover that a lot in the next episode, too. New York City was a jungle at this point. Like, it's absolutely, like, you know, whole places that had no police presence whatsoever. And so he just shot the, the, the people that he shot on the street were just like open. It was just out in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hidden at all. Like, right. this person, he shot her five, he shot at the car five times. But what he says is that he didn't even know that he murdered anybody. He just ran. Yeah. Like, he did it and he was just like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then when he got back to the house, he didn't know that he had killed somebody until he read the newspaper. The uh, next right. morning. And the uh, eyewitnesses said they heard five shots and then they saw somebody slowly running away. <laughs> like, I think that's him. Almost, we could catch him. Almost an amble? Yeah. Just kind of these, Oh, away. why are these side quarks are all, all cracked? I gotta watch my ankles. I didn't put on any of my braces before I started running. You gotta be careful out here. Get me a wrist guard. Like, oh, I gotta bring my wrist guards next time I go out to kill a woman. So the second attack came. 
three months later in Queens, Carl DeNaro and Rosemary Keenan, whose father would eventually work on the task force to find Son of Sam, again had five bullets fired at them as they sat in their car. Luckily, neither one was killed, but DeNaro, he got a metal plate in his head after part of his skull had been blown away. He was just really happy because now he, wherever he went in New York City, he was always getting personal reception of the Yankees game. Yep. <laughs> so that's all he gave a shit about. So Berkowitz returned to the Bronx for attack number three, taking down two girls aged 16 and 18 after a showing of New York, New York. On November 26th, he approached the girls asking for directions, but opened fire on him before he even finished his sentence. Neither would die, but one would be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of her life. Mm. What if he was actually looking for directions? He wasn't. He's a and former kid. And the gun accidentally just went off on mm-hmm. him. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. Oh, God. Oh, God. Just, oh, I'm so jumpy tonight. I didn't mean to. I was just gesturing with my... I called it my gesturing stick. That's what I was going to call it. And then I've got a gesturing thing. I wanted to go to the Costco because I'm running out of Quaker oats and milk. <laughs> That was just sort of currency in the 70s, just a gun. (laughs) So the following January, on a cold, cold New York night, they said it was two or three degrees above above zero that night, Berkowitz approached Christine Freund and John Deal as they were waiting for their car to warm up, listening to ABBA after seeing a showing of Rocky at the Continental Theater in Queens. Berkowitz fired only one shot, this time hitting Freund in the head, and she died the next day. Mm. You know what's really interesting is that during this time period, David Berkowitz would also keep a emergency pack in the back of his car. He had a fantasy while he was driving around stalking people to kill them. Of he, what he also wanted to do was like see a house burning and go inside and save a family or like stop a robbery. He had this like idea that he could also be like a hero. Mm-hmm. And so like the night that he killed Freund. He like three hours before that, he helped a group of teenagers push a car that was stuck in a pile of snow. Yeah, it was all about power with him. It's where that the killing, the arson, all of that is all like arson is all about controlling your environment, controlling what happens. And I suppose it's also sort of similar to what people do when they're on a diet. They had a salad for dinner. So then they're like, I'll have five donuts just as a (laughs) snack. I had a little salad. So he did something sort of nice, helping someone push a car. And he's like, I'll just go kill two people. (laughs) I've earned it. I've earned the right. Everything was just Weight Watchers points to him. He's also the he's the piece of shit that becomes like a cop for the wrong reasons. But the it's like thing. why we have so many shitty cops because it's somebody who's just wants the badge and be able to have a gun legally. So this is a very interesting fact here that I found out. Just uh, I knew that David Berkowitz worked at the post office, and he got the and he got the job just a few days. After killing Christine Freund, what I didn't know about him is that he was actually an operator on the infamous ZMT machines. Now, if you've ever seen the documentary Going Postal, the ZMT machines are the ones in which postal workers have to uh, identify and tag 60 letters per minute. They become an extension of the machine, and they go crazy because they're humans. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. They become extensions of the machine. And it's pretty soon, and they also uh, kind of attribute, partly blame, the going postal killings of the 70s and 80s on the introduction of this machine Mm -hmm. into the post office life. Uh, And it's very interesting that not long after David Berkowitz uh, starts working on these ZMT machines, 
that he starts writing the letters to the police, starts right. writing the letters to Jimmy Breslin. This is what, kind of the time when he really starts to lose his mind. So everybody who got those clearance house, was it the clearance house, uh, things in the mail? Publishers clearing Publishing house. with a little penny. They're all complicit. <laughs> and anytime you filled one of those out, you're complicit. But I also, this is, it's very interesting because we have now the classic view of the loner killer. This is a, this is the guy who created the stereotype. He created the idea of the man who then, because of his being treated like a cog in a machine, his whole life he's felt like he's worth nothing, that he was always, um, he's the, the dirty one. He ruins everything. That his, he was, he wasn't good enough. He killed both of his fucking mothers. He did all this stuff. So now the idea is to he wants to be somebody and he wants to be somebody in a, in a bunch of different ways. And it's all like really dramatic and like classically lame, you know, <laughs> like it's all just it's now it's classic. But then, right. I mean, like this guy is just being fucking prince about it. Yeah, he's really inventing some shit. It's unbelievable. He seems to get every job he wants. <laughs> the economy was booming, but I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, he's was. just getting jobs and giving them up. He's getting yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, security guard, cab driver, post office worker. That's those a, are all jobs with crazy benefits. Yeah, <laughs> but don't. I mean, what color do you think of? I think of gray. With every single, if I had to associate yeah. all three of those jobs, I'm like that is a gray Seattle sky. Yeah, that's a gray existence. Yeah, that's, that's what he awful. had. Yes. I also see a browns. I see browns in there. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Good Good test. <laughs> <laughs> so Berkowitz would return to the sidewalk for his next killing. He shot college student Virginia Voskorichian in the face as she tried to shield herself with a textbook, killing her instantly. Now, this is where we actually traveled to the the mm. site of this murders for Dartmouth place I think it was and there is a feeling to this site and I can't really describe it but there's something eerie about it well we interviewed uh, if you go back and listen to that in search of the boogeyman we interviewed the couple who were there one of the men was alive during that time or and, and the daughter was too but yeah they were t- discussing how chilling just being in that uh place was yeah they well, said if you look at it it's a very scary looking place if you remember where she was shot was down it, it was a scary walkway it yeah. was it's very dark at night and you walked around this winding path under what was sort of like an overpass kind of hallway where two buildings were connected and it was this hidden little door and you can see him come around the bushes out of the shadows and surprise her as she was standing in front of her own door and with and then honestly in a very smart move guarding her face with a very expensive textbook <laughs> in these days it's very scary it was a very scary little neighborhood that you can see what happened to New York City what we're going to cover next yeah. episode like how the randomness of it and the innocent people that he was targeting were made people really go nuts and it's too bad it wasn't the 90s when this happened because the 90s textbooks all had little CD-ROMs and that might have been just enough to stop the bullet. But another interesting thing about that area is it's very segregated. So one side is where the poor people are and you remember how wealthy that other area is. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons these these killings started to resonate with the entire community because he was 
getting in uh, into the area of the wealthy. Yeah. And people start to pay a lot more attention, obviously, then. This is an extremely wealthy area, and his first murder was in a, uh, a mob-controlled neighborhood. And in fact, some of the people, like especially reporters, thought, like, they're like, ah, we're not going to cover that. Like, this could very yeah. well be, this is a girl that may have seen something that she shouldn't have seen, may have said something that she shouldn't have said. Uh, so Which it, is why every eyewitness in every one of these stories are like, yeah, you know, we were outside watching... Uh, you know, I had heard about the, the shootings. It's not the same shootings, you know, because we were standing outside of uh, Domino's Club and we would just, uh, you know, that was a club where we would commiserate, sit around uh, in chairs, just hanging out, just having <laughs> glasses of beer, just commiserating, uh, sitting around in chairs. You know, just a lot of sitting around in chairs. Just me and, and Tommy and, and Ruby and, and Marco and we sit around in chairs and just kind of just, we'd be sitting around commiserating. And you're like, what are you doing? What is your job? Yeah. <laughs> Sitting around, chairs, dominoes. Commiserating. Yeah, yeah. commiserate. Yeah, yeah, they're commiserators. <laughs> Professional commiserators. So although Berkowitz, he racked up relatively small number of attacks. Uh, seven or eight, I think it's eight or nine, somewhere around there, relatively small, but definitely not for lack of trying. This is what he said in his initial confession to cops. Sure, I was out almost every night driving looking for game. I'd look for a parking space for my car. If I found one right away, I would be so tickled pink. I knew I was being commanded. Then I'd hit him. Yeah, he didn't say he was tickled pink. Yeah. (laughs) But that was his thing, is that he would drive around, uh, and if he didn't find that magical parking spot right away, a lot of times he'd go back to the scene of his previous crimes, and he'd either just masturbate in his little Ford Galaxy, or he'd get out of the car and reenact the killings. That is just the lamest thing. Yeah. That is very lame. Him going, like, I gotcha. <laughs> and then I remember I walked up and I pulled up my gun and it was like, I gotcha. We'll blame. We'll blame. It's so New York. Yeah. Just, it, it all relies on parking. Every, <laughs> like, your entire night will be dictated by what parking spot you got where and what time. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether or not you go out or not. Yeah. You know, it makes you lame after a while. It does. So after Voskarichian's death, this is when the cops finally start putting all these attacks and all these murders together. And this is not surprising because, as we said earlier, the five boroughs, they averaged 2,000 murders a year in the 70s. There was no computer system to link the crimes. And also, besides that, uh, the NYPD had huge huge cuts to their uh, staff. Uh, They went from 3,000 detectives to 1,800 in just a few years. Uh, They lost 1,700 just beat cops because of these huge corruption scandals. Mm. Uh, So it's not surprising that it took them a little bit to put it together. They realized that there was a definite MO happening, that there was a guy that was walking up to people in cars or on the street and just shooting them with no motive whatsoever, and they started to notice that all of these had 44 caliber shells. And so they started looking for similarities, and they proved conclusively that the first and last murders uh, both came from the same gun. So a task force was created to bring in Son of Sam. They called it Operation Omega. <laughs> they, uh, Very dramatic. They, I think they give themselves fancy names just to uh, make up for the lack of information and the total... <laughs> 
Uh, they know for a fact they're never going to catch this person, oh, or not for a while anyway. They had all kinds of crazy ideas. At one point, the weirdest thing that they thought about trying was putting a cop in a bulletproof car with a mannequin sitting next to him. Ooh, I think that's brilliant. I also heard they had one where they were just going to take a bed sheet, cover it in honey, and throw it on random spots. <laughs> See if they couldn't stick him. <laughs> so this task force had happened nine months after the first killing and soon after the link was made. By the way, they had 300 detectives on this case. This tells you how serious the case was and how badly they wanted to catch this guy because they only had 1,800 detectives. They had to, because think about that. There were, uh, I think there were 1,200 detectives in New York City. 300 of them were working on Son of Sam. There were 2,000 murders happening a year in New York City. Uh, So soon after the whole link was made, police commissioner Michael Dodd held a press conference and announced that there was a serial killer loose in the city. Panic set in across the five boroughs and the summer of Sam truly began. It's kind of funny if you're a police commissioner. As a stand-up comedian, you go on stage trying to elicit laughs. As a politician, you try to get votes. But if you're the uh, police commissioner, you're like, I hope I get some good panic. (laughs) If I get them to panic, I crushed this speech. Oh, look at I crushed it speech. Look, that woman's crying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I'm going to ruin Bolin for everybody. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Panic is the reaction you want oh, from abs- a police commissioner giving absolutely. a speech about a serial killer. So we're going to leave it right there. We're going to come back next week uh, with what actually happened in New York City after people knew that there was a serial killer out there operating. The entire city went nuts. And we'll tell you exactly how. And we'll also be back with the uh, the infamous letters that Son of Sam sent to uh, both police detectives and a New York Daily News columnist, Jimmy Breslin. Uh, that's all coming next week along with the 12 Disciples of Satan. Whoa. Yeah. Can't yes. wait to hear it. Um, Henry Zabrowski, this is the Last day of you being a nobody. Uh, Heroes Reborn comes out Thursday. Uh, it was at 8 p.m. on Thursday at NBC. Yep, 8 p.m. NBC. It's going to be good. It's good. It's yeah, pretty it's good. good. I, saw it, uh, I saw it last week. Um, it is very large. Okay. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's, the oddest, that's the oddest pitch I've ever heard someone make for their own show. Large. It's, Large. It's a lot of show. <laughs> I would say that it's very good. It is exciting. I um, am I am hesitant to, I want everyone to enjoy it. That is what I would like. I want everyone to enjoy it. You know, I'm we're not, not nervous. Yeah. You're not, well, you're at, you <laughs> answer, you're, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not thinking about my entire career just being absolutely obliterated by everybody hating my face. Mm. No, 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 no. You can not. tell. You can tell he's not worried about that because he said he's not. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. No, yeah. so Do, there's no worry there. Just like all the times that you say you're not angry about something, not angry. I'm mad. No, nope. Henry doesn't get mad. I don't get mad. I'm wearing pants right now. He's not wearing pants. <laughs> that's that's actually untrue. You've been shirtless and pantless this whole time. I stripped down totally to my underwear because I have to build a uh, canopy of blankets in my Canadian uh, apartment in order to make an even viably sounding recording for that's our a, podcast. You so. act, you're actually living exactly like Berkowitz did. Yes. Right now. <laughs> quite a bit of milk as well.
Yes. <laughs> Amazing. So I had to put the blankets up on yeah, because then the sound reverberates and I just, well, I want everyone to know how clear and sweet my voice can be. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just imagine. Uh, Remember, the, he had shag carpeting in that apartment. Yeah. And there were discarded milk cartons everywhere. Oh. So it's he didn't drink every drop of those no, milk cartons. He can't. just threw a milk carton on the ground. So you'd imagine his shag carpeting was just crusted with rotten milk. No, this is Berkowitz or Henry. (laughs) Yeah. And his butt smell. You know that he wasn't, because it's also in the 70s, no one really showered all the time. Yeah. You know, so it was like butt smell and milk smell and it's a different sort of, it's not a hip, it's not a, it's not a drifter smell. No. It's a Bronx smell. Well, <laughs> if he would have just hung in the dating game, he would have found a woman that loved it. I would imagine he's somewhere between Bundy and Kaczynski as far as scent goes. Bundy smelled mm-hmm. great. Okay, Gacy and S- S- uh, Kaczynski. Yeah. Because Gacy probably didn't smell good. Well, he smelled like Stetson. You know, he, he smelled like <laughs> low-level politician good. Yeah. Yes. Something yeah, yeah. like that. Um, all right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Let's see. I'm doing uh, Red Eye on the 24th, which is this morning at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Marcus has new shirts. Marcus? Yeah, the Cowmen. We uh, just got in uh, new shirts of the Cowmen. They're fucking awesome. Reed Failer, the same guy that did our cover design, uh, designed them. And uh, they are at, you can find them at thecowmen.bandcamp.com, which is also oh. where you can buy our album. Uh, they're uh, 20 bucks each. Go and check them out. Plus shipping and handling, of course. And if you want your own last podcast on the left t-shirt, Go to cavecomedyradio.com slash merch uh, and you can get one of those for $25 and that includes shipping and handling. $40 international. Uh, And uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter at LP on the left and go join the Facebook group. And And also please continue to send us your listener pasta. Any any sort of creepy pasta that you've written, please send it to us. We're sifting through the emails we already got to choose the ones that we are going to read and then we're going to record your true scary story um, just pitch them to us, and then we're going to set two recording times, right, Dog Meat? Oh, yeah, on a Sunday mm-hmm. and probably on a Tuesday evening. We're going to try to get it where uh, everybody has some sort of time uh, that they can do it. But, yeah, send us, uh, definitely send us the, the creepypasta that you're writing, but start sending us uh, the stories that you have to tell uh, that you can actually call in and tell us. So, uh, right. yeah, so uh, d- get a hold of us on and that. Also start thinking of some questions to ask some real live wizards we're going to have in the studio, and that is mm-hmm. true. We're going to have two real-life sorcerers that will ask your magic. They will answer your magical queries. I've got some questions for him. <laughs> uh, you can also find Henry on Twitter at Henry Loves You. Marcus Parks on Twitter at Marcus Parks. I am at Ben Kissel. Continue to uh, thank you so much for supporting all the shows here on CCR Page Seven. Sex and Other Human Activities Roundtable and Top Hat those are very nice uh, shows thanks so much for all your uh, comments about those and uh, what is there a Mangustalation? I believe so and a Heilgeen as well oh Heil me and Heil sweet Satan who provides for those who do something about it that's right and hail yourselves and hail yourselves specifically when you're watching Heroes Reborn absolutely Henry, Henry everyone's very proud of you just DVR it if you very got to so. DVR it you know what I mean um, and just trying to leave the direct criticisms to a place where I can't immediately see them, <laughs> if you would. But it, maybe put it, maybe if you're going to completely trash heroes, maybe put it over to the, I don't know, somewhere on website. You just know? remember that we are all people with souls. Right. Um, <laughs> also, let's say, Henry, don't actively seek out criticism online. Do not online. actively oh, seek out criticism. These are the rules. I do yeah. not do that. I do not you do that. I read everything. I read everything. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, so, and it's extremely unhealthy. All I get is love. <laughs> so, oh, and also, one more thing. Thanks to uh, research assistant uh, Sammy Coughlin and uh, science officer uh, Megan uh, Fierro uh, for all the uh, help on the research this episode. Well, are we, are we allowed to give out her email yet so she we can start receiving? We absolutely are allowed to give out her email. Let me we know. are? Yes, we are. I asked her. What, she is. And what's her email? And the purpose of giving out her email is just to make her life more, you never know how today's going to go. It's just more like if you have a specific, I don't know, critique or something about facts on the show, you send it to her. Yeah, send and you're sure you want to do this to her. She, she said, I, I she asked said yes. her. I asked her three times. Okay. I asked her three times. She told me yes three times. I had to make absolutely sure. And so, yes, yes, she is absolutely down uh, for answering all of your science questions. You can get a hold of her mm. at fierrom90 at gmail.com. That's F I E R R O M 90 at gmail.com. Well, she just know this. We will probably be recording her reactions to some of these emails for a future Patreon price. So, um, also, no, Dick, don't send her any cockpicks. Don't, no, no, don't no, even, br- don't don't even throw don't it, even it in the world. Don't even bring it up. I don't, don't know even, why you brought it up you because it now up. it's out there and now just it's don't do in it. their heads. You throw things into the world and then they exist. <laughs> you can show her pictures of your titties, though. I don't know if she really wants. I don't think she wants that either. I would say none of that. I don't think yeah. she wants any sort of genitals or no. mammary glands. Again, human okay. being. Yep. Yeah, just human human, human being. Yes, she's right. a nice girl from Long Island. Everyone. So Island. just pretend like I didn't say either bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to CaveComedyRadio.com. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Can I be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers? ba da ba ba